the law school of america responses to the kentucky and virginia resolutions in 1798 the kentucky and virginia legislatures passed a series of resolutions asserting that the states have the power to determine whether acts of congress are constitutional in response 10 states passed their own resolutions disapproving the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Six of these states took the position that the power to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional lies in the federal courts, not in the state legislatures. For example, Vermont's resolution stated, It belongs not to state legislatures to decide on the constitutionality of laws made by the general government, this power being exclusively vested in the judiciary courts of the Union. Thus, five years before Marbury v. Madison, a number of state legislatures stated their understanding that under the Constitution, the federal courts possess the power of judicial review. Marbury v. Madison The Supreme Court's landmark decision regarding, Cranch, 1803. Marbury was the first Supreme Court decision to strike down an act of Congress as unconstitutional. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the opinion for a unanimous court. The case arose when William Marbury filed a lawsuit seeking an order, a writ of mandamus, requiring the Secretary of State, James Madison, to deliver to Marbury a commission appointing him as a Justice of the Peace. Marbury filed his case directly in the Supreme Court, invoking the court's original jurisdiction, rather than filing in a lower court. The constitutional issue involved the question of whether the Supreme Court had jurisdiction to hear the case. The Judiciary Act of 1789 gave the Supreme Court original jurisdiction in cases involving writs of mandamus. So, under the Judiciary Act, the Supreme Court would have had jurisdiction to hear Marbury's case. However, the Constitution describes the cases in which the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction, and does not include mandamus cases. The Judiciary Act therefore attempted to give the Supreme Court jurisdiction that was not warranted by the Constitution. Marshall's opinion stated that in the Constitution, the people established a government of limited powers, the powers of the legislature are defined and limited, and that those limits may not be mistaken or forgotten. The Constitution is written. The limits established in the Constitution would be meaningless if these limits may at any time be passed by those intended to be restrained. Marshall observed that the Constitution is the fundamental and paramount law of the nation, and that it cannot be altered by an ordinary act of the legislature. Therefore, an act of the legislature repugnant to the Constitution is void. Marshall then discussed the role of the courts, which is at the heart of the doctrine of judicial review. It would be an absurdity, said Marshall, to require the courts to apply a law that is void. Rather, it is the inherent duty of the courts to interpret and apply the Constitution, and to determine whether there is a conflict between a statute and the Constitution. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must, of necessity, expound and interpret that rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the courts must decide on the operation of each. So, if a law be in opposition to the Constitution, if both the law and the Constitution apply to a particular case, so that the court must either decide that case conformably to the law, disregarding the Constitution, or conformably to the Constitution, disregarding the law, the court must determine which of these conflicting rules governs the case. This is of the very essence of judicial duty. If, then, the courts are to regard the Constitution, and the Constitution is superior to any ordinary act of the legislature, the Constitution, and not such ordinary act, must govern the case to which they both apply. Marshall stated that the courts are authorized by the provisions of the Constitution itself to look into the Constitution, 
that is, to interpret and apply it, and that they have the duty to refuse to enforce any laws that are contrary to the Constitution. Specifically, Article 3 provides that the federal judicial power is extended to all cases arising under the Constitution. Article V requires judges to take an oath to support this Constitution. Article V also states that only laws made in pursuance of the Constitution are the law of the land. Marshall concluded, thus, the particular phraseology of the Constitution of the United States confirms and strengthens the principle, supposed to be essential to all written constitutions, that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void, and that courts, as well as other departments, are bound by that instrument. Marbury Long has been regarded as the seminal case with respect to the doctrine of judicial review. Some scholars have suggested that Marshall's opinion in Marbury essentially created judicial review. In his book The Least Dangerous Branch, Professor Alexander Bickle wrote, The institution of the judiciary needed to be summoned up out of the constitutional vapors, shaped, and maintained. And the great Chief Justice, John Marshall, not single-handed, but first and foremost, was there to do it and did. If any social process can be said to have been done at a given time, and by a given act, it is Marshall's achievement. The time was 1803, the act was the decision in the case of Marbury v. Madison. Other scholars view this as an overstatement and argue that Marbury was decided in a context in which judicial review already was a familiar concept. These scholars point to the facts showing that judicial review was acknowledged by the Constitution's framers, was explained in the Federalist Papers and in the ratification debates, and was used by both state and federal courts for more than 20 years before Marbury, including the Supreme Court in Hilton v. United States. One scholar concluded, before Marbury, judicial review had gained wide support. Judicial Review After Marbury Marbury was the point at which the Supreme Court adopted a monitoring role over government actions. After the court exercised its power of judicial review in Marbury, it avoided striking down a federal statute during the next 50 years. The court would not do so again until Dred Scott v. Sandford, 1857. However, the Supreme Court did exercise judicial review in other contexts. In particular, the court struck down a number of state statutes that were contrary to the Constitution. The first case in which the Supreme Court struck down a state statute as unconstitutional was Fletcher v. Peck, 1810. In a few cases, state courts took the position that their judgments were final and were not subject to review by the Supreme Court. They argued that the Constitution did not give the Supreme Court the authority to review state court decisions. They asserted that the Judiciary Act of 1789, which provided that the Supreme Court could hear certain appeals from state courts, was unconstitutional. In effect, these state courts were asserting that the principle of judicial review did not extend to allow federal review of state court decisions. This would have left the states free to adopt their own interpretations of the Constitution. The Supreme Court rejected this argument. In Martin v. Hunter's Lessee, 1816, the court held that under Article 3, the federal courts have jurisdiction to hear all cases arising under the Constitution and laws of the United States and that the Supreme Court has appellate jurisdiction in all such cases, whether those cases are filed in state or federal courts. The court issued another decision to the same effect in the context of a criminal case, Cohen's v. Virginia, 1821. It is now well established that the Supreme Court may review decisions of state courts that involve federal law. The Supreme Court also has reviewed actions of the federal executive branch to determine whether those actions were authorized by acts of Congress or were beyond the authority granted by Congress. Judicial review is now well established as a cornerstone of constitutional law. As of September 2017, 
the United States Supreme Court had held unconstitutional portions or the entirety of some 182 acts of the U.S. Congress, the most recent in the Supreme Court's June 2017 Matal v. Dam decision striking down a portion of July 1946's Lanham Act. Criticism of Judicial Review Although judicial review has now become an established part of constitutional law in the United States, there are some who disagree with the doctrine. At the Constitutional Convention, neither proponents nor opponents of judicial review disputed that any government based on a written constitution requires some mechanism to prevent laws that violate that constitution from being made and enforced. Otherwise, the document would be meaningless, and the legislature, with the power to enact any laws whatsoever, would be the supreme arm of government, the British doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. The delegates at the convention differed with respect to the question of whether Congress or the judiciary should make determinations regarding constitutionality of statutes. Hamilton addressed this in Federalist No. 78, in which he explained the reasons that the federal judiciary has the role of reviewing the constitutionality of statutes. If it be said that the legislative body are themselves the constitutional judges of their own powers, and that the construction they put upon them is conclusive upon the other departments, it may be answered that this cannot be the natural presumption, where it is not to be collected from any particular provisions in the Constitution. It is not otherwise to be supposed, that the Constitution could intend to enable the representatives of the people to substitute their will to that of their constituents. It is far more rational to suppose that the courts were designed to be an intermediate body between the people and the legislature, in order, among other things, to keep the latter within the limits assigned to their authority. Since the adoption of the Constitution, some have argued that the power of judicial review gives the courts the ability to impose their own views of the law, without an adequate check from any other branch of government. Robert Yates, a delegate to the Constitutional Convention from New York, argued during the ratification process in the Anti-Federalist Papers that the courts would use the power of judicial review loosely to impose their views about the spirit of the Constitution. In their decisions they will not confine themselves to any fixed or established rules, but will determine, according to what appears to them, the reason and spirit of the Constitution. The opinions of the Supreme Court, whatever they may be, will have the force of law, because there is no power provided in the Constitution, that can correct their errors, or control their adjudications. From this court there is no appeal. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson expressed his opposition to the doctrine of judicial review. You seem, to consider the judges as the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions, an extremely dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. Our judges are as honest as other men, and not more so. They have, with others, the same passions for party, for power, and the privilege of their core. Their power is the more dangerous as they are in office for life and not responsible, as the other functionaries are, to the elective control. The Constitution has erected no such single tribunal, knowing that whatever hands confided, with the corruption of time and party, its members would become despots. It has more wisely made all the departments co-equal and co-sovereign within themselves. In 1861, Abraham Lincoln touched upon the same subject, during his first inaugural address. He candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. Nor is there in this view any assault upon the court or the judges. 
It is a duty from which they may not shrink to decide cases properly brought before them, and it is no fault of theirs if others seek to turn their decisions to political purposes. Lincoln was alluding here to the case of Dred Scott v. Sandford, in which the court had struck down a federal statute for the first time since Marbury v. Madison. It has been argued that the judiciary is not the only branch of government that may interpret the meaning of the Constitution. Article V requires federal and state officeholders to be bound by oath or affirmation, to support this Constitution. It has been argued that such officials may follow their own interpretations of the Constitution, at least until those interpretations have been tested in court. Some have argued that judicial review is unconstitutional based on two arguments. First, the power of judicial review is not expressly delegated to the courts in the Constitution. The Tenth Amendment reserves to the states, or to the people, those powers not delegated to the federal government. The second argument is that the states alone have the power to ratify changes to the Supreme Law, the U.S. Constitution, and that the states should play some role in interpreting its meaning. Under this theory, allowing only federal courts to definitively conduct judicial review of federal law allows the national government to interpret its own restrictions as it sees fit, with no meaningful input from the ratifying power. Standard of Review In the United States, unconstitutionality is the only ground for a federal court to strike down a federal statute. Justice Washington, speaking for the Marshall Court, put it this way in an 1829 case. We intend to decide no more than that the statute objected to in this case is not repugnant to the Constitution of the United States, and that unless it be so, this court has no authority, under the 25th section of the Judiciary Act, to re-examine and to reverse the judgment of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania in the present case. If a state statute conflicts with a valid federal statute, then courts may strike down the state statute as an unstatutable violation of the Supremacy Clause. But a federal court may not strike down a statute absent a violation of federal law or of the federal constitution. Moreover, a suspicion or a possibility of unconstitutionality is not enough for American courts to strike down a statute. Alexander Hamilton explained in Federalist 78 that the standard of review should be irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. Anti-Federalists agreed that courts would be unable to strike down federal statutes absent a conflict with the Constitution. For example, Robert Yates, writing under the pseudonym Brutus, asserted that the courts of the general government are under obligation to observe the laws made by the general legislature not repugnant to the Constitution. These principles, that federal statutes can only be struck down for unconstitutionality and that the unconstitutionality must be clear, were very common views at the time of the framing of the Constitution. For example, George Mason explained during the Constitutional Convention that judges could declare an unconstitutional law void. But with regard to every law, however unjust, oppressive or pernicious, which did not come plainly under this description, they would be under the necessity as judges to give it a free course. For a number of years, the courts were relatively deferential to Congress. Justice Washington put it this way, in an 1827 case, it is but a decent respect to the wisdom, integrity, and patriotism of the legislative body, by which any law is passed, to presume in favor of its validity, until its violation of the Constitution is proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Although judges usually adhere to this principle that a statute could only be deemed unconstitutional in case of a clear contradiction until the 20th century, this presumption of constitutionality weakened somewhat during the 20th century, as exemplified by the Supreme Court's famous footnote for in United States v. Caroline Products Company, 1938, which suggested that statutes may be subjected to closer scrutiny in certain types of cases. Nevertheless, 
the federal courts have not departed from the principle that courts may only strike down statutes for unconstitutionality. Of course, the practical implication of this principle is that a court cannot strike down a statute, even if it recognizes that the statute is obviously poorly drafted, irrational, or arises from legislators' corrupt motives, unless the flaw in the statute rises to the level of a clear constitutional violation. In 2008, Justice John Paul Stevens reaffirmed this point in a concurring opinion, as I recall my esteemed former colleague, Thurgood Marshall, remarking on numerous occasions, the Constitution does not prohibit legislatures from enacting stupid laws. In the federal system, courts may only decide actual cases or controversies, it is not possible to request the federal courts to review a law without at least one party having legal standing to engage in a lawsuit. This principle means that courts sometimes do not exercise their power of review, even when a law is seemingly unconstitutional, for want of jurisdiction. In some state courts, such as the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, legislation may be referred in certain circumstances by the legislature or by the executive for an advisory ruling on its constitutionality prior to its enactment, or enforcement. The U.S. Supreme Court seeks to avoid reviewing the constitutionality of an act where the case before it could be decided on other grounds, an attitude and practice exemplifying judicial restraint. Justice Brandeis framed it thus, citations omitted. The court developed, for its own governance in the cases within its jurisdiction, a series of rules under which it has avoided passing upon a large part of all the constitutional questions pressed upon it for decision. They are 1. The court will not pass upon the constitutionality of legislation in a friendly, non-adversary, proceeding, declining because to decide such questions is legitimate only in the last resort, and is a necessity in the determination of real, earnest, and vital controversy between individuals. It never was the thought that, by means of a friendly suit, a party beaten in the legislature could transfer to the courts an inquiry as to the constitutionality of the legislative act. 2. The court will not anticipate a question of constitutional law in advance of the necessity of deciding it. It is not the habit of the court to decide questions of a constitutional nature unless absolutely necessary to a decision of the case. 3. The court will not formulate a rule of constitutional law rather than required by the precise facts it applies to. 4. The court will not pass upon a constitutional question although properly presented by the record if there is also present some other ground upon which the case may be disposed of, if a case can be decided on either of two grounds, one involving a constitutional question, the other a question of statutory construction or general law, the court will decide only the latter. 5. The court will not pass upon the validity of a statute upon complaint of one who fails to show that he is injured by its operation. 6. The court will not pass upon the constitutionality of a statute at the instance of one who has availed himself of its benefits. 7. When the validity of an act of the Congress is drawn in question, and even if a serious doubt of constitutionality is raised, it is a cardinal principle that this court will first ascertain whether a construction of the statute is fairly possible by which the question may be avoided. Laws Limiting Judicial Review Although the Supreme Court continues to review the constitutionality of statutes, Congress and the states retain some power to influence what cases come before the court. For example, the Constitution at Article 3. Section 2, gives Congress power to make exceptions to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. The Supreme Court has historically acknowledged that its appellate jurisdiction is defined by Congress, and thus Congress may have power to make some legislative or executive actions unreviewable. This is known as jurisdiction stripping. 
Another way for Congress to limit judicial review was tried in January 1868, when a bill was proposed requiring a two-thirds majority of the court in order to deem any act of Congress unconstitutional. The bill was approved by the House, 116 to 39. That measure died in the Senate, partly because the bill was unclear about how the bill's own constitutionality would be decided. Many other bills have been proposed in Congress that would require a supermajority in order for the justices to exercise judicial review. During the early years of the United States, a two-thirds majority was necessary for the Supreme Court to exercise judicial review, because the court then consisted of six members, a simple majority and a two-thirds majority both required four votes. Currently, the constitutions of two states require a supermajority of Supreme Court justices in order to exercise judicial review, Nebraska, five out of seven justices, and North Dakota, four out of five justices. Administrative Review the procedure for judicial review of federal administrative regulation in the United States is set forth by the Administrative Procedure Act although the courts have ruled such as in Bivens v. 6 unknown named agents that a person may bring a case on the grounds of an implied cause of action when no statutory procedure exists. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Mm-hmm.